Hello everyone and welcome to Freud in Focus, a podcast from the Freud Museum London, presented by Jamie Ruiz and me, Tom DeRose, and produced by Carolina Heller. Jamie's not with us this week, but I'm delighted to welcome Professor Brett Carr to the programme. Brett has worked in the mental health profession for more than 40 years. He is, among many other things, a senior fellow at the Tavistock Institute and visiting professor of psychoanalysis and mental health at Regents University, London. He's also honorary director of research at the Freud Museum. Brett, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Hello, greetings to you, Tom. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. You're very welcome, Brett. Um, I'd just like to start by kind of looking back on our podcast series so far. So. Our podcast has reached the end of its third series, of course. We've just finished reading the wonderfully rich Civilization and its Discontents. But those of you who've been with us on this journey from the very beginning will remember that we started by reading Beyond the Pleasure Principle, which was published in 1920 and which celebrated its 100-year anniversary in the same year that the COVID pandemic hit. There seems to be a kind of tragic symmetry in the circumstances surrounding the publication of Beyond the Pleasure Principle and our recent events. It was written, of course, in the midst of the Spanish flu pandemic, which had such a devastating global impact. Brett, when the COVID pandemic hit in 2020, you also decided to write a book published last year, and titled Freud's Pandemics. What were your motivations for writing this book? Well, first of all, Tom, if I may say, I I want to congratulate you and and your colleagues, Jamie Ruiz and Carolina Heller, because since the inception of the Freud in Focus podcast, I have been a, a very, very great fan. I've listened to every episode, sometimes more than once. So I think you're all doing a, a really fantastic job, and it's a great way to promote Freud. And I must say that I would not have written the book Freud's Pandemics had it not been for your colleagues at the museum, Jamie Ruiz and Lily Spain, who run the events program because shortly after the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic here in the United Kingdom, back in March of 2020, uh, Lily and Jamie contacted me and said, Brett, we've we've had to close the museum to members of the public, a a real tragedy. The first time that ever happened in, you know, since the museum first opened in, in 1986, just heartbreaking to think that that members of the public could not actually walk into Freud's home at Mayersfield Gardens. And uh, Jamie and Lily said, well, we have now discovered a new technology called Zoom, which I must confess I had, I had never heard about before. And you know, they said, rather than bring people into the museum, we can do Zoom events. Would you like to do a Zoom event you know, to help uh, support the museum? And, as a fundraising campaign and so on and so on. I said, yes, absolutely. And then they asked, well, what would you like to speak about? You have, an, you have an open opportunity. I said, well, you know, given that we're in the middle of a global pandemic, I cannot think of anything else that we could talk about, should talk about, need to talk about, than what lessons we might learn from Sigmund Freud himself, because he, is a man who survived multiple pandemics during his own life. So really, having written this book on Freud's pandemics, it was uh, not only a, a hope to do something useful for the museum, but I wanted to know, you know what, what can we learn from, from Freud as a human being? What can we learn from Freud as the founder of psychoanalysis? to help us cope with grotesque traumata, decade after decade after decade of traumata. Because if anybody lived through multiple pandemics in his own lifetime, not only the so-called Spanish flu of 1918 to 1920, but, but a whole variety of other pandemics, 
it was Sigmund Freud. So it, it was really, really my plan to see what kind of wisdom we can still uh, extract from Sigmund. Right, I, I mentioned um, earlier this, this kind of tragic symmetry, um, uh, almost as if the kind of recent COVID pandemic feels like a, an uncanny repetition of the Spanish flu pandemic that Freud himself lived through. Um, as you mentioned, in your book, you use the word pandemic metaphorically. You suggest that it might, that this book might be the first exclusively traumatologically orientated biographical portrait of Freud. This approach, I think, really offers us a more human Freud than is often presented. A Freud who lived and suffered and endured. And also a Freud who is very relatable. In your book, you highlight six different pandemics, you know, that you cover. Could you kind of briefly just describe them for us, please? You're, you're right, Tom. I do use the word pandemic both to describe actual virological infestations that can, can uh, attack the, the human body physiologically. Uh, but I also use it metaphorically to describe other types of pandemics, such um, as anti-Semitism, such as Nazism. And in fact, although everybody who has read the book has said you're, you're stretching the word pandemic in a metaphorical way, uh, I, I must say I, I do wonder whether anti-Semitism, whether Nazism are not actual pandemics as well, because they claimed actually far more lives than uh, the current coronavirus. So uh, we, we, can, we can hold that in mind as an interesting question about what is the nature of the different pandemics. But you're right, I've identified six pandemics in inverted commas that Sigmund Freud had to navigate, had to endure, had to survive and had to conquer during his own long 83-year life cycle. And very briefly, the, the six that I've identified are, first of all, a childhood with a lot of richness, but also some complexity. He grew up, as you know, in an extremely impoverished family. His, his, his parents would have been known at that point in time as peasants. His father was a really strugglesome, sheep wool trader who literally had to to collect you know the wool from sheep and try to sell it in in marketplace so uh, freud grew up in a lot of poverty and he and his mother and father and then ultimately a, a, a first brother and a first sister literally lived in one tiny room in in a in a in a rented house in the outer regions of was then the, the Austrian Empire. So that was a kind of pandemic of deprivation in its own right. But I think what was perhaps hardest for Freud and his family growing up is the fact that they were born as Jews. And being Jewish has never been easy historically, as you know. But at that point in time, Jews were really regarded globally as truly, truly denigrated objects, uh, you know, for, one could say second-class citizens, but actually citizenship for adult males within the Austrian region had only just become available. You know, Freud, uh, when he went to university in Vienna in 1873 as a young man, he was literally the first male in his family ever to attend a university, because Jews were literally not allowed to engage in higher education. So there was a real pandemic, a lifelong pandemic of anti-Semitism within the Austrian Empire, where Jews were very, very marginalized, very denigrated. And uh, there were even times where there were, were restrictions on marriage, restrictions on the number of children that you could have uh, within the empire. I think it's not fully appreciated in this day and age. So to grow up knowing that you are already hated by most people is, is, is by no means easy or straightforward, as you will appreciate. So Freud had to endure anti-Semitism for the whole 
of his life. And I would really identify that as the first of these six pandemics. You know, we mustn't forget that when Freud was a, was a young doctor in Vienna after he had qualified, the citizens of Vienna elected as their mayor, as their burgomeister, a, a man called Karl Lueger, who ran for office on an overtly anti-Semitic ticket. And in fact, he was a source of inspiration, ultimately, to another man who appeared years hence, uh, called Adolf Hitler. So, so Freud really grew up in a very, very unsafe moment of history, at a very unsafe time and in a very unsafe place. And I think the challenge to human safety, you know, sp speaking in my, my psychotherapeutic role as, as a clinician, you, know, you, could, you could have a, a life full of riches, uh, lots of parties, lots of nice friends, but if you don't feel a sense of bodily safety, you will be very, very much at risk for severe clinical depression. So with all the Jews having that basic sense of safety and security challenge, it was quite an achievement for Freud to, to live the creative and, and flourishing and genius life and make the professional contribution that, that, that he did make. So uh, anti-Semitism, I would say, is, is probably the first and, and maybe the, 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 the biggest and, and the most long-standing of those pandemics. But shortly after Freud started to investigate what had been called originally the so-called talking cure, which now we take for granted. You know, nowadays, if you go to see your GP and say, oh, I'm uh, perhaps drinking a bit too much alcohol, or perhaps I'm a bit too anxious or depressed, the GP might prescribe uh, various forms of medication. But, but nowadays, you know, psychotherapy and counseling have become so much more available, so much more normalized. Your general medical practitioner might say, well, perhaps you ought to see a therapist and engage in the talking cure. So a very, very different world. But back in the 1880s and 1890s, when Freud and his senior mentor, Josef Breuer, really began to explore this so-called talking tour, it was considered extremely radical because the standard treatment for mentally ill patients back in the late 19th century in continental Europe was first and foremost neglect, not doing anything to the patient, but those who were extremely ill were institutionalized, and not just for a week, not just for a month, but often for an entire lifetime. Once you were put into a lunatic assignment, you rarely ever came out. And many of the so-called lunatics of the late 19th century were subjected to brutal treatment. They would be beaten, they would starve, they would put, be put in shackles. Uh, women who suffered from hysteria would be subjected to really grotesque, sadistic surgical procedures on their genitalia, on their ovaries, and, and so forth. And Freud, I, I think people don't appreciate nowadays in, in this day and age how much Freud humanized the treatment of so-called mental illness. And we are grateful to him for that because he said, listen, just come into my office, lie down on this comfortable couch and tell me about your mummy and your dad. You know, that was an incredibly physically non-invasive way to treat mental illness at the time. And it's become standard practice nowadays. But back then, he actually shamed quite a lot of his more traditional medical colleagues in the fields of neurology and psychiatry. Those were the two branches of the medical profession in the late 19th century that took primary responsibility for what we would now refer to as, as mental illness. And they hated Sigmund Freud for challenging the model of brain degenerationism. Because back then, they thought, well, if you're mad, it's because you've inherited a crazy, pathologically damaged brain. Nothing to do with mother, nothing to do with father. Childhood, infancy did not even come into the narrative at all. And Freud said, we have to go back and investigate your infancy and childhood with archaeological historical care. And we have to give you a quiet, safe, confidential room in which you can speak about your early secrets. 
So in having invented psychoanalysis, he really, really attacked his fellow medical colleagues. And they attacked him in consequence. And I think the second pandemic, Tom, that Freud really struggled to survive is what I would call the pandemic of professional shaming. Because once he started to publish his case histories, once he started to publish his theoretical essays on psychopathology and its treatment psychoanalytically, you know, he first used the term psychoanalysis in print in 1896, he was attacked left, right, and center across the globe, literally. And, you know, his surname is Freud, but many British physicians actually referred to him in print in esteemed medical journals, not as Sigmund Freud, F-R-E-U-D, but as Sigmund Fraud, F-R-A-U-D. They actually called him Dr. Fraud rather than Dr. Freud. Now, can you imagine if that is your surname and somebody says, you're not a Freud, you're a fraud. I mean, they really, really hated him. They disrespected him. Nowadays, uh, medical journals would not allow publication of that kind of shaming and uh, slandering. There'd, there'd be lawsuits aplenty. But, but back then, you know, doctors could, could, could say what they like. And he was accused of being a sexual pervert and a pornographer because he dared to talk about the details of his patient's sexual lives, including horrific experiences of sexual abuse. But back then, nobody talked about sexuality. All the women were dressed in layers and layers of clothing with corsets. You know, the body was an object of shame, and it was fully covered. And Freud was uncovering the body in, in a psychological sense, saying, well, let's Let's find out what your erotic thoughts and fantasies are. Let's find out what your early sexual experiences had been. And that was considered really, really uh, a disgustingly radical intervention. So he had to endure a lot of hateful, hateful attacks. And Professor Otto Marburg, who was one of the leading urologists in Vienna, he actually dismissed Freud as nothing more than a Casanova. Can you imagine one doctor today referring to another doctor as a Casanova? It was really, really a, 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 a very cruel way of, of dismissing the entire corpus of his work. And of course, what we've come to discover is that, you know, apart from geeky historians uh, like, like us who actually know the names of these other uh, ancient 19th century doctors, each one of them has been forgotten. But it's only Sigmund Freud who has a museum named after him in London and a museum named after him in Vienna and, and so on. So uh, he did survive and his, the legacy of his work has survived, but, but the attacks were very painful. So anti-Semitism was the first pandemic in inverted commas, professional shaming the second. And then, you know, once the Great War began in 1914, uh, pandemics of plenty rolled out in Sigmund Freud's private life and professional life. Uh, the third pandemic is, is the, the Great War itself from 1914 to 1918. And I think people don't fully appreciate. We, we know about the, the horrors of the battle. But I don't think people appreciate how cut off Austria was from basic food supplies. It, it, was, it was not quite as, as, as horrific. You, we didn't have access to, 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 to nuclear missiles in the way that, uh, sadly, we do nowadays. Uh, but Vienna, people in Vienna had, for many periods of time during the Great War, no access to heating. Freud actually had to spend much of the day in his overcoat, and he's written in some of his private correspondence, that his fingers were literally frozen, that it, it, it gave him physical pain just to hold a pen to write. He was first and foremost a professional uh, writer and, uh, and produced no shortage of works, as you know, only too well. But, but it was really, really strugglesome. And the family had very, very little access to good food supplies. Freud's cousin in, in England, a gentleman by the name of Samuel Freud, tried to send him some food parcels, but it took 
two or three months for these parcels to arrive from Manchester to Vienna. So it was really a time of tremendous deprivation for Freud, even though he was not himself on the front line. And then to make it even worse, during the war, all three of his sons, Martin, Oliver, and Ernst, they all served in the battle. They all had very, very scary experiences. Martin was actually shot. Uh, Ernst was nearly exploded in a bombing in, in Italy. And uh, really, really just horrific experiences. And of course, back then, nobody had mobile telephones or emails or even fax machines. You know, Freud and his wife, Martha Freud, they did not know for months whether any of their three sons were still alive. There was just no way to make contact with the Austrian soldiers who were actively fighting on a daily basis. Martin was then imprisoned by the British for nine months, just as the First World War was coming to an end. So that was a, a really ghastly time for, for Freud and his wife and indeed the whole family. And then just as the war is ending, the so-called Spanish flu of 1918 erupts. And we do not know the actual figures. Obviously, the field of, of health care and epidemiology was, was rather different uh, a century ago. But most medical historians estimate that the death toll of the so-called Spanish flu could well have been between 50 million bodies and 100 million bodies. I mean, just a huge, huge number. If it, if it were, in fact, uh, uh, accurate that it, it was 100 million casualties, that is more victims than died in World War I and World War II combined. So that was just a grotesque experience. And of course, no vaccinations at the time. You know, COVID of, of 2020, 2021, 2022 is, is grotesque. And it's claimed many, many lives and caused so much uh, tragedy and, and mental health fallout, as, as, as we know only too sadly. But the Spanish flu was even more horrific. There, there were no treatments uh, that, that worked uh, at all. And, and Freud really suffered. And sadly, at the very outset of 2020, uh, sorry, the very outset of 1920, his middle daughter, Sophie, died from the Spanish flu within literally a matter of days. She lived with her husband and her two little sons in Hamburg, in Germany. So Freud could not even see his daughter to say goodbye after she'd contracted the flu. And he was utterly devastated. And as you, as you rightly underscored, Tom, it's perhaps not accidental that he published his famous monograph, known in English as Beyond the Pleasure Principle, in 1920. We know that he had already started writing it before Zofi died, but he did write it right at the apex of the, the end of the First World War, the fallout of the First World War, and, you know, it, it, you know, the, the, the probable death, the possible death of himself and of all his family members was very, very much at the forefront of his mind when he said, you know, life is not just about sexuality and pleasure. There's also something pretty horrible in the human mind called a death drive and, and, and uh, horrific, aggressive, sadistic uh, drives and, and impulses. The human mind is very, very ugly and very pained indeed. So in terms of the intersection between Freud's private life and his professional life and his publications, there's a very, very great uh, overlap. So, so he had those pandemics to deal with. And then shortly after he began to recover from the death of his cherished daughter, Sophie Freud Alberstadt, he was diagnosed in April of 1923 with a very serious maxillofacial cancer. And I won't go into all the, the, the grisly details, but over the next 16 years, Freud endured more than 30 surgical procedures on his facial cancer. He had large parts of his jaw removed, a very primitive uh, 
you know, false jaw inserted into his mouth, which caused him uh, a, a lot of pain, a lot of physical pain. And he was subjected to very, very primitive radiotherapy treatments. They were not nearly as uh, sophisticated as they are today, understandably. And they actually burned his skin. So at one point, the skin of his face literally blackened because it had been burnt by the primitive radiotherapy. So that was a pandemic of its own kind. And this remarkably verbally adept, verbally fluent Freud could not, for the last 16 years of his life, speak with clarity. We do have one BBC recording that he made shortly before his death in 1938. I'm sure you've listened to it uh, many, many times, and perhaps, perhaps it can be uh, integrated into, into one of your podcasts so that people can, can access it easily. But you know, his family called him at one point the wah-wah man, because when you hear his voice, he, he's not speaking with clarity. He really, really struggled just to open his jaw. So sometimes he would give sentences and they would sound, wah, wah, you know, just like that. So he, he, he could no longer be the lecturer that he was for the, for the whole of his life. It was a huge bodily assault, a huge bodily loss. Uh, living with death, really, for, for 16 years. So that was a pandemic of its own, its own kind. And I think for those interested, you know, please do read. There, there are two <coughs> magnificent books which many, many listeners may have come across. Uh, one written by his, his former physician, Dr. Max Schur, published in 1972, called Freud Living and Dying, where, where this man, who was actually Freud's day-to-day -day doctor, really chronicles the the utter tragedy of how he had to go through these uh, incredibly painful treatments. And then an American uh, physician called Professor Sharon Rom, R-O-M-M, published a book 11 years later in 1983 uh, about Freud's cancer as well. And, and, and they're really, they're really, um, they'll bring tears to your eyes when you, when, when you read so dealing with facial cancer would have been his fifth pandemic, and then very briefly, because it, 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 it needs uh, multiple podcasts to cover this, the sixth and final pandemic we can call quite simply adult that, that hit the changed the life of everybody, destroyed the life of, of millions upon millions of, of people. The, the Jews were horrifically attacked. Freud lost four of his sisters in the concentration camp, four of his sisters, many other uh, people close to him, many German psychoanalysts and Austrian psychoanalysts died in Auschwitz and Theresienstadt in the, in the death camps and so forth. And Freud only escaped Vienna and managed to get first to Paris and then to London because he was a celebrity Jew. And he was very, very fortunate to have really loyal comrades like uh, the very, very feisty Welshman, Dr. Ernest Jones, who used to be a, a very champion skater and, and would skate with Sir Samuel Hoare, who was one of the British politicians at the time. And as they were skating by one another, Dr. Jones said to, to Sir Samuel, please, can you get me some, some exit visas for the Freud family? And then Freud's former patient, uh, the French princess Marie Bonaparte, was extremely wealthy. And we suspect that she probably gave a very large financial donation to the Nazis to say, listen, you know, we'll give you money. Uh, let's get Freud out. And, and both Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt were keeping a close eye on the status of the Freud family. So the Nazis knew that it was probably not the best thing to send Sigmund Freud to a concentration camp. So... He was unbelievably lucky to get out. I remember, Tom, back at the very, very early days when the museum first opened in 19, 1986, and I had the, the, the privilege to be on the staff back in those good old days. I was giving a tour of the study, and a, a very lovely, lovely elderly Jewish woman came in for a, a tour of Freud's study, which is just, as you know, full of his wonderful couch and uh, nearly 2,000 books and 
nearly 2,000 antiquities and so forth. He was in an unusual position where he got to take all his possessions with him from Austria to, to Great Britain. And this woman who had been a Jewish refugee from Poland, she burst into tears and she said, when I left Poland, all I could take with me was a little rag to cry. That was the only physical object apart from her clothes. She, she could take nothing with her. So, so Freud was really a Jewish aristocrat in that respect. But, but you know, his, his whole life exploded. And to be an 82-year-old cancer-ridden man and have to rip himself out of his life in Vienna and just see everybody around him jumping out of windows and being shot and being deported, you know, really, really horrible. And then to spend his last year, albeit in a beautiful house, in such tremendous pain as a, as a refugee. So he had a tough life. He really, really did have a tough life. And that is why, in, in a brief encapsulation, I, I referred to this narrative as Freud's pandemics. And he did survive. He didn't have a nervous breakdown. He didn't become psychotically ill. And I think the reasons that he didn't is that he did enjoy very strong, secure attachments to a mother who never left him in childhood and to a father who never left him in childhood. Yes, like every human being, he had issues, in inverted commas, with mummy and daddy. But they were basically good loyal, devoted parents, Amalia Freud and, and Jakob Freud. And I think that gave him a sturdy ego structure, as he would have described it. And, um, you know, uh, and then to have really forged a life of so much creative pleasure and creative satisfaction that gave him meaning, the talking cure gave him meaning. He found his own way to go through the talking cure process through his own self-analysis. But Freud really also pioneered the writing cure. You know, for Freud, writing was not just dealing with correspondence the way we all handle emails nowadays. It was a real source of pleasure and potency for him because it was through writing of letters, articles, monographs, books, and so forth that he was able to archive, document, and disseminate all of the wisdom that he learned from his own private researches and his own investigations. So work really made Freud a truly, truly creative and physically and emotionally robust person. And I, I think he, he can be, in many ways, for, for so many of us, a terrific role model. Yeah, that's wonderful, Brett. Thank you so much. I mean, there's so much kind of richness in what you say. And, and I'm, I'm glad you actually brought in the notion of a writing cure. Um, because, of course, Freud was such a great writer, won the Goethe Prize for Literature. And, and um, even in English, in, in translation, you know, he's, he's so uh, wonderful to read. And I was also thinking of a, another great writer, of course, of W.H. Uh, Auden, who's a um, very famous poem on Freud's death in, in memory of Sigmund Freud, you know, really kind of captures that richness of life. And also about Auden's later poem, uh, The Age of Anxiety, you know, kind of, I think, which was written just after the Second World War. And, and thinking about, you know, as you're describing Freud's life and his existence as almost like the age of pandemics, isn't it, that Freud has gone through, this kind of series of pandemics. So, um, and I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's kind of this, this metaphor, this, we might call it actually a viral metaphor rather than the, the metaphor of a pandemic. Um, you know, that's something obviously you really foreground in your book and it leads you quite naturally and seamlessly into a discussion of the notion of a vaccine you know the viral metaphor and the vaccine you've hinted on this um in the discussion previously but I've, i wonder if you could elaborate you you spoke a little bit about psychoanalysis as a and the talking cure more generally um as a kind of psychological vaccine now, I mean, this was a part of your book that I really found extremely compelling, actually. I wonder if you could say just a, a little more about this, Brett. I, I like what you just said very much, Tom. I think that's very insightful about the age of anxiety and the age of pandemics. And, and also, I, I very much uh, appreciate your phrase about 
the viral metaphor. I think that's I think that's a, a very good way of encapsulating what Freud lived through, and perhaps what we're all living through. You know, I I, I wrote this book, and I gave my first Freud Museum London Zoom talk before the horrific explosions in Ukraine. You know that uh, that 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 erupted. Uh, it was perhaps brewing, but but it only erupted earlier this year in, in 2022. So we're, we're living in an ugly, ugly chapter of human history. And perhaps all historians would say, actually, there has never been a beautiful chapter of human history. We, we've, had, we've had murder and warfare and, 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 and horror uh, from, from the very inception. And it may be that Freud himself would have championed that notion because I think one of the reasons Freud is so much hated by large numbers of people is not just because he wrote so explicitly about sex. I think he's hated even more because he really foregrounded the fact that our minds are full not just of sex, but of violence. That the mind is really primitive, the, the deep, archaic core of the mind. And when he conceptualized this in 1923 as the id, which is the, the really ugly part of the mind, and superego, which is the finger-wagging part, say, you know, don't, don't steal, don't commit murder, don't do bad things, you know, honor your mother and father. That is the war that every human being embarks upon every single day of, of one's life. And when Freud wrote about the ego as the sort of the, the piggy in the middle, if you like, that's struggling between the primitive uh, sexual and aggressive impulses and then, you know, what is right and what is wrong, the superego, everybody has, has a tug of war going on in their mind all the time. And the better one's early life experiences, the more sturdy one's parental attachments as an infant, the more likely you are to end up on the side of having a healthy ego structure rather than a very frail, very damaged ego structure. But, but being a human being is tough. And also, as Freud taught us, even if you have the best mummy in the world and the best daddy in the world, once you discover something called mortality, you spend the rest of your life living with something called death anxiety. You know, you could be as rich as the Queen of England, but you know that one day every single one of us will be dead and ultimately forgotten. So he really tried to foreground the true set of, of almost unspeakable anxieties that lie deep in the soul of every single one of us. And when those anxieties are not contained, they do result in these very horrific explosions. So I, I, I think just being human is, is a viral infection of its own kind. Now, one might say that's a very negative way of looking at, looking at the life cycle, but I think, I think that is one of the reasons why people are both drawn to Freud and drawn away from him, because he really spoke with such honesty and such frankness about what the inside of the mind really looks like when you, when you get into it in such a deep way. Freud did not have access to magnetic resonance imaging machines in his lifetime, but I think he did invent with psychoanalysis what I've come to think of as the psychological MRI. He really, really gives us that deepest psychoneurological portrait of what the human mind looks like and it's, it's not always it's not always pleasant and i think his personal experiences helped to make him much more aware of much more sensitive to these ugly aspects of human nature but the good news is, is that by having invented psychoanalysis as a very non-physically invasive form of treatment I think he did create, he didn't quite frame it this way, but I think if Freud were alive today, he might well say, well, look, you know, he's, he's not working with, uh, with uh, Sir Andrew Pollard uh, at the University of Oxford to make, uh, you know, an AstraZeneca vaccine or a Pfizer vaccine or a Moderna vaccine and so forth. 
but he invented a Freudian psychological vaccine, which is called therapy. If you're about to explode and you're carrying rage in your soul, come and talk to a mental health professional. Literally, get it off your chest. Put it into words rather than act it out. So I have come to think of the psychotherapeutic process as a form of psychological vaccination. And I've been very, very impressed by all the individuals with whom I've had the privilege to work in my own practice across the pandemic, you know, how everybody has suffered, but they have all survived and soldiered through really, you know, really impressively. And I think my colleagues would say very much the same, because although it's been a grotesque moment of, of everyone's biography, therapy has helped people to avoid breakdown. I think the people who really are breaking down, sadly, are those who've not been in therapy or haven't had easy access to therapy. So if anything can be learned from the pandemic, that we need more Freudians now than ever before. And at last, we have government ministers who are taking an interest in mental health. That never used to be the case. So I, I, think, I think although it, it's been a pretty grotesque time, I think the, the, one of the big benefits of this pandemic era that we're living through now is that people are taking mental health far more seriously than at any point in recorded human history. And I think that would have made Freud very, very satisfied indeed. Yes, there's a kind of, as you're describing there, um, when you started talking there, but it feels as almost as if, you know, naturally, you know, as human beings we are in a world, so, you know, that there is a kind of, there is a potential for conflict, a potential for for um tension you know in fact almost that's that's the given that's what that's the that's what you're given when you come into the world isn't it through the experiences that you have of it and and that that kind of the notion of a of a psychological vaccine then might just allow us to hold things together perhaps or to to work through those difficult times and and um and kind of maintain a kind of a sense of of a very hard one and, and equilibrium really i guess um and i wonder now because we do it does feel as you mentioned earlier that we are living in in quite dark times historians as you said might refer to previous previous eras as as, as having equal amounts or perhaps more kind of conflict but there does seem a particular moment um now we, we're of course still dealing with the covid pandemic and and the impact that that's had on society learning to live with it kind of renegoti renegotiating our social rituals our kind of engagements with people having to relearn basically being you know being in the world again and being with people covid's clearly been devastating for societies but using your, your notion of, of the pandemic in a metaphorical sense, and you, you've, you've touched on uh, the war in Ukraine, um, politically, you know, we, we do seem now to be set, uh, beset by a number of, of pandemics, don't we? we? We have the pandemic we might call the pandemic of mistruth in, in the political sphere, sadly. That, that kind of geopolitical um, pandemic of aggression that you've referred to. Um, nationalism, intolerance and violence appear to be on the rise, uh, don't they? So it does feel very, very um, timely, really, for us to be engaging with Freud again, who lived through kind of comparable experiences and wrote so insightfully, I guess, about them. Um, Brett, could you just draw out perhaps, you know, one or two lessons that you might think that contemporary politicians and decision makers more generally might take from Freud? You know, how, how might an engagement with Freud and, and talk therapies more generally help us perhaps to prevent future pandemics? Well, that's a, a vital, vital question. I, I, I wish we had a few more hours where we could we could talk about that and um, I'd, I'd love to hear your views on it Tom and I'm really delighted to say that that during the pandemic uh, colleagues in every branch of mental health have really started speaking up and speaking out very very vocally 
about how we need to have much more dialogue with politicians because badly we do have leaders within different governments who one might describe as mentally ill. You know, there, there was a huge controversy just a few years ago uh, within a certain psychiatric uh, organization uh, for, 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 you know, rapping on the, the, the knuckles, one of, its, one of its members who spoke out about the mental illness of a certain uh, leader of a country. And a, a lot of psychiatrists were saying, well, actually, you know, back in the old days, we were told never make psychiatric comments about living figures. That, that would be unethical. But this particular colleague said, actually, not make psychiatric comments about world leaders who are mad or violent is unethical. So I think, I think the good thing is that, that mental health professionals are starting to speak out much more vocally. And it's not necessarily easy for psychological workers to do that because we are in a profession where we actually spend most of our working lives silent. You know, I've, I've done quite a lot of the talking during this uh, podcast interview that we're having, <laughs> but in a session with a client, with a patient, you know, I'm pretty much silent most of the time and I might make a few comments here or there about the patient's narrative. So we are, as a profession, a pretty quiet profession. But I think that in terms of commenting on politics, we do have the opportunity now, we do have the obligation now uh, to speak out perhaps more, more boldly uh, in that regard. And I, I think, you know, what, what I wrote about in, in the final sections of, of, of my book on Freud's pandemics, is if Freud had had access to conversations with someone like Anthony Fauci, what might he have, you know, recommended? And I think that, I think that the book that I would encourage every single politician and every single epidemiologist to read by our friend Sigmund Freud is his 1923 monograph known in English as The Ego and the Id. The ego and the id, as, as some people would would say. Uh, I think it's one of his most, I don't know if you'd agree with me, Tom, I think it's one of his most complex pieces of writing in terms of style. There are no compelling dramatic individual case histories. It's it's full, it's 100% theoretical prose, but I think it's a work of, of genius beyond genius, because the ego and the id is, in my estimation, Freud's best encapsulation of the psychological MRI portrait of the inner ugliness of the human mind. And I, I'd, I'd love Anthony Fauci and you know every Boris Johnson and everybody to, to to read it, because I think one of the problems that we saw with the spread of the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic, was the assumption that people are first and foremost rational. So that if a healthcare expert says, stay home, you know, look after yourself, look after everybody else, don't engage in public gatherings, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that will stop the spread of a virus. This is all very good advice, but that assumes that one is in a rational state of mind, governed by the ego or the superego, rather than by the id, or by the, the real depths of the destructive arenas of the unconscious mind. And I think that was one of the really big, deadly fallouts of the healthcare advice, the assumption that people are going to be responding to this in a rational way. People were traumatized. People did not necessarily have access the apex of the coronavirus pandemic to the most reasonable parts of their mind. And in, in the book, I, you know, I, I, I talk about some of the, the first horrific stories about, you know, you know, a man was arrested in this particular village because he hosted a party with 80 guests, you know, right at the, right at the apex. It makes the Downing Street party gate look, look rather uh, tiny by, by comparison, you know, all of that. And one could say, well, is that just people expressing uh, their, their rights as free citizens, or is it actually a form of madness, or is it a form of unconscious murder to actually engage in such 
destructive, irrational behavior, uh, which has such uh, horrific, such violent consequences. So I think that politicians need to work more with psychoanalytically orientated, Freudian orientated mental health workers to really help appreciate that although a lot of people on this planet are very smart, very rational, very intelligent, do their jobs very well, everybody has a very, very fragile, vulnerable, traumatized part of the mind, and large numbers of people live in states of irrationality rather than rationality. And that we know entirely because of Sigmund Freud. He was the first person really to give us a roadmap of that where it comes from, and how it might be cured. I think you put that really eloquently and powerfully, Brett, this kind of, um, there's something you mentioned earlier as well about this, the, the, the almost like the ugly truths that psychoanalysis um, tells us, you know, that, that we have to learn, and the, and the amount of resistance actually that, that exists to these kind of, notions of a, of a kind of an unconscious and, and the death drive, as you mentioned earlier. But, but going through this experience of the pandemic with the irrationality of behaviour, you know, coming to the fore, it's amazing that, that I guess these, these ideas of unconscious murder, as you say, of the death drive, don't, um, don't have more kind of public traction, really. The, the resistance is extremely strong, isn't it, against these ideas? And but I think, as you said, you know, engaging with these ideas for leaders, um, uh, politicians, but indeed for all of us in kind of chaotic and anxiety-ridden times, can really help to to kind of ground us and help us to work through these incredibly difficult moments psychologically. Um, obviously, next year is the anniversary of the uh, publication of The Ego and the Id, and I hope to be doing, um, we'll, we'll hopefully do a podcast on The Ego and the Id next year. Um, and Brett, uh, we'd love, we'd lovely, love to invite you as well to be, uh, oh, to be good. a guest oh, on I'm the program for, for that series as well. So um, bear that in mind, that'll be kind of early um, next year, I think we'll aim to do that. But I um, just just want to ask you just finally, Brett, um, you've, you've really sketched, as I mentioned earlier, a very human Freud, a kind of real, a kind of fellow sufferer, if you will, someone that we can almost identify with in their suffering. Um, I think part of the, the, the way that you've managed to do that, if I might say, is, is to kind of is to really highlight the fact that it's impossible to separate the public and the private in many ways. Um, the one kind of blends seamlessly into the other. But of, often, of course, we might want to resist the kind of the implications of that notion. And perhaps this is also something to do with why psychoanalysis still meets such resistance today. Um, Brett, I also I wondered then if on a final note, you might be able to shed some light on how this can be applied to Sigmund Freud himself. Uh, what impact did Freud's private life have upon his theories? And also, what impact did his theories have upon his private life? Oh, it's a great question, Tom, and it's, it's a huge question. I, I think that Freud's private life certainly will have impacted upon his professional writings. You know, he, he knew what it was like to suffer. You know, it, it's not accidental that psychoanalysis, which is essentially the most in-depth treatment, in my estimation, of, of, of mental ill health, that that was founded by a 19th century Austrian Jewish man. You know, I, I don't think a, a British aristocrat would have invented mental health treatments in the late 19th century. Well, well they, they simply didn't, because they were in a much more privileged, much more protected post. But Freud always knew that he was on the outside, and he was sensitive enough to appreciate the consequences that that could have. So I think Freud was able to identify with his patients. He took the suffering seriously. He didn't dismiss it. And when I said earlier in our conversation, Tom, that the main treatment in my estimation in the 19th century for psychiatric patients was neglect, I really mean that. Most people were just literally left 
to suffer in silence. And many simply committed suicide or engaged in acts of, of, of real violence against, against other people as well as against themselves. So Freud took suffering very, very seriously. He was, in my estimation, a deeply, unusually empathic man. And I think that his awareness of his own sufferings did impact on his theories. I don't think that he could have written his big uh, 1900 text, The Interpretation of Dreams, if he hadn't drawn upon his own analysis of his own dreams and of the dreams of his children. As you know, he, he cites his, his little children's dreams uh, quite regularly, and his, his wonderful daughter, Anna Freud, who inherited the house at 20 Maresfield Gardens, now Freud Museum London. You know, she was really his key inspiration for the notion that dreams contain early childhood wishes. As he would, he would hear her, you know, in the middle of the night, uh, mumbling in her sleep, uh, strawberries, you know, I want strawberries, <laughs> <Yes>. and, and, <laughs> and other, other delicious, uh, Food. I, I suspect little children nowadays would probably be uh, dreaming about digital technology rather than strawberries. <laughs> but but well, strawberries still have a, <laughs> a certain appeal, don't they? But back back then, that was that was that was quite a big gift for a child. So I I think his private life does very much influence his his writings. Uh, but but he also really drew upon the the the, live, the private lives of his patients. I think it was that integration of his own private life and that of his many, many analysands, because he had a full, long, rich practice of people from every part of the world over decades and decades. There, there wasn't a story that Freud wouldn't have heard in his clinical lifetime. So I think that really does, and he documented it so well, and I think it does really emerge in his theories. And it's an interesting question. We could have a whole conference on that about Freud as a, as a psychobiographical subject about to what extent did, did his uh, life influence his writings and what extent did his writings influence his life. I, I, I do think, just to give you a, 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 a simple one-line answer, I do think that, that just the sheer act of writing, whatever it was that he wrote about psychoanalysis, whether it was about dreams, sexuality, primitive parts of the mind, uh, uh, and so on and so on, I think that was his writing cure. You know, he could easily have gone to bed much earlier every night, but he often stayed up, as you know, till one in the morning, two in the morning, and then would get up the next morning, you know, between 7 a.m. and 8 a.m. That was his general uh, daytime, nighttime structure. He could have treated himself to many more hours of sleep, but he was obsessed by writing. He had so many thoughts in his head, and he knew he needed to document them, to archive them, to bequeath them to the next generations as a legacy. And I think he's given us an amazing legacy. And I would really like to see Freud become you know, the equivalent of William Shakespeare in schools. And, you know, you and your colleagues uh, who are working full-time at the museum, are, as you know, are doing some wonderful work educating children. I mean, it's, it's terrific how many, how many young children, groups of children, school children, have been coming to the museum to get exposed to this thing called psychology and this guy called Freud. It's, it's really fantastic. And, I think he does deserve to have that place in school that Shakespeare would have had when, when we were little kids, where whether you like him, you don't like him, whether you find him exciting as a writer, whether you find his plays too long and too boring, you know, everybody has to engage with Shakespeare if you want to graduate from your school. And I think that Freud deserves that iconic Shakespearean status because he is really the Shakespeare of, of our time. I, I think we all have so much to, to learn from this man still. It's wonderful, Brett. Thank you very much. What a, what, a, what a lovely, kind of powerful way to end today. Freud is the Shakespeare of our time. You know, both, of course, great writers and incredibly acute analysis of the human mind and the complexities of living in the world. Um, Sadly, that is all the time we have uh, for today. But Brett, I'd first of all just like to thank you so much for taking us on this fascinating journey of uh, Freud's pandemics.
Thank you so much, Tom, and, and, and thanks to, to uh, our dear colleagues, Carolina and Jamie. As I said, I'm, I'm a great admirer of the Freud in Focus podcast series, and I don't mind uh, saying publicly that I've, I've listened to every single episode, not once, but twice. <laughs> I've really, really enjoyed them. So I, I recommend that everybody goes back to the archive and, and goes through all the episodes. They, they really do take Freud very seriously, and we need that now more than ever. So thank you. Thank, that's very kind, Brett. Thank you. I'd like to say to um, everyone, Brett Carr's book, Freud's Pandemics, that we've been discussing today is the inaugural volume in the Freud Museum London series, published by Confer Books in association with the Freud Museum. Uh, Freud's Pandemics is available from the Freud Museum's online shop, which um, is at www.shop.freud.org.uk at a special offer price, so, and it's highly recommended. I'd also like to thank my co-presenter for this series, Jamie Ruiz, and our producer, Carolina Heller. If you've enjoyed this podcast series, then please consider supporting the Freud Museum by making a donation. The Freud Museum London is an independent charity which receives no government funding, and your donation will help us to keep programmes like Freud in Focus free to access. You can donate at www.freud.org.uk forward slash donate. Thank you all for your support, and we hope that you'll be able to join us soon for the next series of Freud in Focus. Mm -hmm.